0: We turn now to pages 8 and 9 of our worship folder, and then later to page 10, for the text is rather long this morning, from the life of David, two passages related to the Ark of the Covenant and to his being now King of Israel. Of course, the Ark was as old as Moses, built in the days of the old, early Old Testament, and now it is in David's day that we return to it. First, From 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and then from 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 through 15. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, and then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple in Ashdod step on the threshold. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, thirty thousand in all. He and all his men set out from Baalah of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs, with harps, with lyres, tambourines, cistrums, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah and to this day that place is called Perez, Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day. and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, no, and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And with those, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephah, danced before the Lord with all his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. This is God's word. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for your book. It contains stories which continue to challenge us, puzzle us, and cause us to be conformed to your image. And once again this morning as we consider the ark of the covenant that you insisted upon being made and which you alone selected as symbolic of your presence among the people, won't you be present among us by your word and spirit and open our eyes and change us? Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord God Almighty looked an awful lot like this. If you can see from where you're sitting or at some point this morning, take a look. That is pretty close to scale, color at least. It was made of acacia wood and not uh, cardboard. But uh, some men in the congregation, using the dimensions given in the Scriptures in places like Exodus 25 and 37, have constructed a facsimile of the Ark. It was not a magic box. It was never intended to be just a ritualistic uh, piece of of, uh, furniture either. And yet there are times when it just seems remarkable in what happens in its presence. One of those instances is given to us in 1 Samuel chapter 5, where after it was captured in battle by the Philistines and brought back to their capital and placed in the presence of their strong gods, in the night, with no one around, the strong stone god of Dagon fell on its face. No Philistine pushing it over. The next morning they find it and they bring it back to its normal resting place. And the next day the same thing happens. And they jump back and they say, we don't want this anymore. There's something amazing here. The box was symbolic always, but always more than that. It was a picture of God's presence among his people. It was what he wanted them to have to remind them. And he gave specific instructions as to how it was to be handled and made. You see in the outline on page 9 that it was a wooden box overlaid with gold, with a slab of pure gold for a mercy seat, and angels, or cherubim, central piece of furniture placed in the tabernacle, later in the Holy of Holies. And over the ark appeared the royal presence, the Shekinah glory, the face of the Lord. From time to time it was clear that he was there with them, not confined to that space, because he was everywhere as well, but he caused himself to be wonderfully manifested in the presence of God's people through that box. And not only did he oversee the construction of it and the dimension of it, but he told them how it was to be handled. It was to be handled in a specific way the Levites, the priests of the Lord, were to go in front and behind. They were to surround it in effect. It was part of their work in the sacrifices of the temple and tabernacle, but it was also their work whenever the box was moved, that it would be moved in the presence of the Levites before and on the side and behind. Furthermore, The box was to be carried through poles here represented nicely by those Levites as they went from place to place. When it was resting, it was resting. But when it was moved, it was not to be touched. It was to be taken through these poles to its next location. And finally, it was to be covered. Covered over from sight. So that people could not ordinarily see it and of course then placed in the holy of holies where only the high priest could enter once a year on the day of atonement this is the background now we enter into the story and first of all the promise of the ark the ark of the covenant had been captured by the Philistines and later sent back we've read of that david is now the king we're in we're in that time when he is his king of israel And he wanted the ark and God to be central to his kingdom. So he arranges for it to be brought to Jerusalem. And surely in his mind from Psalm 27 and verse 4 were words like this. One thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and seek him in his temple. So, so far as we know, David, now king, moving to the capital of Jerusalem, having been at Hebron for seven years, he's on his way to that capital, and he wants the box to go with him. The box of Moses. The box of the ancient people of Israel, that had been a part of the ministry of God's people for centuries now. He wants it there because he doesn't want to just be king powerful and mighty and victorious in battle and politics. He wants God to be central to his kingdom. And this is a symbolic and yet real, not unlike the communion table, symbolic but real presence of the Lord. If David did not have the joy that came from spiritual reality, there I say he was not going to make it as king. He saw this. He wanted to experience the presence of God in real time so that he would have the joy that was not subject to circumstances. He would be under pressure all the time as king. He needed the joy that got stronger, the worse things got. So do we. We're not king of Israel and don't have those responsibilities, but even the little ones we carry weigh us down. Can we measure up? Will we be successful? Will the end be accomplished and attained? And so his beginning is noble and laudable. He wants the ark in his presence in the kingdom central capital. But there's a problem. The ark had been lost 20 years ago due to the wickedness of Hophni and Phineas, the sons of Eli. The Philistines had taken it. That's in 2 Samuel 3. They carried the ark into battle, and they were badly beaten. The Philistines captured the ark. They could see that it was valuable. Really, the box isn't all that inherently valuable. There's gold, of course, but not a lot of it. But the Philistines sensed that there was something special about it, and it was one of their trophies of having defeated God's people. But every time they put it in one of their temples or towns, the idols fell down, or the people experienced plagues. We didn't read some of the other things that happened, but everywhere the ark went, there was trouble. And they figured it out. There was a connection between the two, so they sent it back. returned to sender. Take it back. We don't want it. It's too much trouble. Now, had we read this story as well-trained, Sabbath-trained, Sabbath-school-trained Jews, we would have seen problems all over the place. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, there are all kinds of difficulties with what David did. (coughs) First of all, He put it on an ox cart to be carried to the kingdom, the capital of Jerusalem. That was not the way it was supposed to be carried. The instructions are explicit. When you move the box, you don't touch the box. You put poles through the holes and you pick it up and you carry it. For whatever reason, and we're not told why, David decides to put it on a new cart and carry it up to the city. That's a problem. Secondly, as they go, he has not the Levites surrounding it, but just just some other men. The Levites as a group were were absent from this arrangement. And not only that, it is open. It's, It's visible it wasn't supposed to be seen. It was supposed to be covered. David uh, put it on. It says it put it on an ox cart. As it touched the cart, we read about that, and drops dead. And David is angry, scared. Why did this happen? What does it mean? Underlying this all, of course, is the awareness that this is a special box. symbolic of the Lord's presence. And everywhere it goes, it causes trouble. And now, it causes trouble here. We could understand and we could applaud when the Philistines were disgraced by it. But now, we've mishandled it. And David, verse 8, 2 Samuel 6, was angry. Because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. The rules for transporting the ark had been given and ignored. It was to be carried by the Levites, it was to be covered, poles were to be used, it could not be touched. They broke all the rules. David was involved in it. David was the one who said, Put it on the ox cart. They had been lackadaisical. And so Uzzah suffers as the last in the line of those who got it wrong. But why did only Uzzah die? And why wasn't David punished some way, somehow? As they say, Uzzah did not die because there was a force field around the ark, or because he broke the rules, because the rules had already been broken. By David and others. The Levites stood by quietly, evidently, while the box was moved without them. Uncovered. Why does David why does Uzzah die? Is it because God wants to be flattered? Is it a A holy, special artifact? No, there's much more going on than that. Uzzah died because there is a chasm between humanity and God that cannot be bridged by good works. There has to be a sacrifice, an atonement, a payment must be made. Uzzah died because he forgot that you cannot reach across this chasm by radical grace, so to speak, by personal inaction. He believed that the soil of the ground, if the ark fell, would defile it more than he would. Uzzah made the mistake of immediate contact with God as if God could be managed. That's the central problem here. He died because evidently it was the habit of his heart not because he broke a rule. We come back to the instance, too, of Ananias and Sapphira, where they're being struck dead in the New Testament, and the instance of Achan's sin in the Old Testament in the days of Joshua. And we find that in some t- sometimes in the Bible, when someone transgresses the law of God, they are struck dead immediately. If that was a normal thing, we would all be gone. It would be an empty room, and, and there would be no people of God on the earth, for we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we all deserve the kind of instantaneous judgment that fell upon Uzzah. In fact, David deserved it. But evidently, Uzzah, in his desire to walk close to the ark, to be noticed in its presence, and to be worrisome over it, had a habit of his heart that was not right. And the same may be said of Achan... And Ananias and Sapphira, though we don't know fully their biographies, surely the Lord did. And it wasn't the first time. Uzzah died because in order to wake up the king and the nation that Uzzah's approach to God was lethal, something happened. Uzzah thought that he could manage God and did not see himself as a sinner. See, we can get this cart from point A to point B. Let's put it on a, let's take this box and put it on a cart, any old cart, any old way, and let's get ourselves up there. I'll help. I'll be glad to help. If you believe that right belief and good behavior puts God in your debt, that is a lethal attitude. is dead now, struck down because God is making a strong and important point. If you believe that right belief and good behavior puts God in your debt, that is a lethal attitude. You are far from the radical grace of the gospel. If you take as approach and you have a successful life, it will make you a cold and proud person because you will think you earned your good life and you will think you deserved it and that you've managed God. I was among those who carried the cart to Jerusalem on which the ark of God was born. If you take Uzzah's approach you and have a failing life, you will become bitter and confused, crippled by guilt and shame because you believe God owes you better. Uzzah was struck dead because he thought he could manage God And David thought he could manage God. And the Levites thought they could manage God. And they all deserved to die. Every one of them. David deserved to lose his kingdom for not paying attention. It was laudable that he wanted to bring the box, as symbolic of God's presence, into the capital city as he was now the king. Yes, but he went about it as if it was up to him how to do it. And the Bible was very specific that it wasn't up to him how to do it. And Uzzah said, I'll join in, I'll help, I'll stand front and center. And when the box wobbled, understandably he touched it and that was it. We shouldn't think, however, that God has a long fuse and this was just the last nerve that that happened. He might have instantaneously struck down David, the Levites, and anyone else who participated in this travesty. Now, we read the story, as I said, and we say, well, that's, a, that's one way to do it. But if had we been to Sabbath school, had we been schooled like we should be in the book of Exodus, Deuteronomy, we would say, wait, wait, wait a minute. That's all wrong. That's all wrong. Where are the poles? Where are the Levites? Where is the covering? It's wonderful that you want to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the capital city, but you must do it in the right way. And when you don't, you're betraying the habit of your heart which says, I'm going to manage God. I don't, I don't meet on his terms. He, he comes part way and meets me on mine. And us paid the price. But we thank God for the example it raises the question then on the page on page 10 the provision of the ark how can we connect to god god is teaching david what to do and he teaches us as well first of all there are two steps we have to see the problem of bridging the gap david begins to see it now his first reaction in verse 8 is anger but his second is fear His first anger is, it's not fair that you should do this, God. You've wrecked our day. You've ruined what we had planned. But then he's afraid. And it says that he was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He sees that his own and Uzzah's desire to manage God and thoughtlessly serve him has led to disaster. And he's thought about it, and he's moved beyond his initial reaction of anger, and he's seen, oh my goodness, how could we ever, 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 please a holy God? How could we ever, ever, ever come well into his presence? And he sees that the ark is like the gospel. No one is righteous. Not one. Not Uzzah, the eager one. Not David, the king. Not the Philistines. No one. Not the lazy Levites who didn't stand up and say, no, it's we who are supposed to carry the box. Both good people and evil people need the gospel. And the ark smites both. The Philistine gods fall down. Uzzah falls down. There's a problem. We don't want to come on God's terms. Even when we know what those terms are, we want to change them. But we need to see the provision that he has made. We read on to verse 11. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed the Edom. Edom the Gittite for 3 months and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Obed Edom is blessed for his stewardship of the ark. God made the ark to tell us about the chasm but also to display the provision of his grace. It's not as if now everyone must die. The ark can be taken to the house of Obed-Edom and the progress towards Jerusalem is stopped for a moment while everybody ponders what just happened. And what happens? Plague? No. Disease and disaster? No. Obed-Edom's house comes crashing down? No. It is blessed. God made the ark to tell us about the chasm but also to display the provision of of His grace, through the gracious provision of it of His mercy, you can be loved and accepted more than you ever dared to hope. Forgiveness always takes suffering. He suffered for our freedom. Hebrews ten speaks of it. The Bible speaks of it from one end to the other. If He did that for me, if He bridge that gap for me if he blessed me in seeing all of my foolishness and selfishness then I really am loved and my heart fills with joy because I know how little I deserve and how much I have received Uzzah and the Ark have taught us this the application Recognize the chasm between God and man. It is enormous. His holiness and righteousness and perfections are unattainable to us. They're far beyond whatever we could know. And the fact that we could even communicate with him is remarkable. And that he has condescended to tell us who he is and how to serve him is wonderful. When you see this chasm and you rejoice that he has built the bridge joy will flow into your life. But if you proceed like Uzzah, like Ananias and Sapphira, like Achan just going about your business serving God along the way thinking subtly that he can be managed you're wrong. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. His powerful hands, he's not to be trifled with. We must see that. All true repentance comes first from seeing the chasm, the distance between God and us. All true repentance and change comes from recognizing that instead of congratulating ourselves for our religious activities, we have a long, long way to go and can't get there. It's enormous. It can't be bridged. Our little little efforts won't add up. All of our efforts together won't add up. That's step one. But step two, we rejoice in what has been done for us. The bridge has been built. The chasm has been bridged. And when we see that, joy flows over to our hearts. David danced when he saw it. David, the careless king. David, the one who ultimately was responsible for this disaster saw what he'd done he was mad at first unwilling to accept that he had any responsibility then he was afraid really afraid he who was not afraid of Goliath and not afraid to run from Saul for months on end and years on end. And not afraid from the Philistine army or in other battles in which he was engaged. was afraid when he saw what happened to Uzzah because he knew that he should have died too. And the gap was too big. And so he stopped congratulating himself for being a godly king wanting to carry the box up to Jerusalem. And he got to his knees, at least in his heart. And he saw that the holiness of God was so great and the need was so great that, that he needed it too. And when that need was provided, when he could see the chasm, and the, the, the teaching of the box is that God is the provision for our sin. And when he had seen that blessing had come back to the house of Obed-Edom, he rejoiced. So there's real spirituality going on. David is not standing on his own identity anymore. He is looking to someone else now. The approval of God is more spiritually real than anything else we can know. He does not care what other people think of him. In fact, of course, his wife shames him for dancing before the ark, shames him for this kind of rejoicing. Why are you behaving like that without dignity? You're the king. He doesn't care what other people think of him. Because he knows that he's saved. He knows the chasm has been bridged. He knows that there is a Messiah coming. Who will reach down in his holiness and forgive and bless. And though we all deserve what he has he will forgive and bring life through his own death and resurrection. This is joy unspeakable and full of glory. This is the one joy that doesn't fade. It's abiding and wonderful. We can only dim it by our own efforts, desire to please God and manage God like David and Uzzah did. Spurgeon puts it this way, some of us know what it is to be almost too happy to live. The love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions that we've almost had to ask for a stay of this delight because we could not endure it anymore. If the glory had not been veiled a bit, we might have died. No one can go into the presence of the Lord. He's too bright and wonderful and holy. But we come through Jesus Christ and in in our coming we have joy unspeakable and full of glory. Wonderful, wonderful, enduring peace and celebration. That's the gospel. That's the truth. And so, God doesn't need to be managed. He needs to be served and rested in. Let us pray. Lord, we're like us and we want to help you. The oxen stumble and we want to steady the box. We want to be there to do things for God. And when you have done everything for us. And in so doing, we betray in our hearts a stubbornness that you must drive away. We can't subdue it ourselves. It's too strong. We are willful. We don't listen. And sometimes we cloak that willfulness and stubbornness in religious activities. Forgive us, we pray. And thank you that you are alive. Victorious over death so also able to be victorious over our stubbornness, willfulness. We pray that you'll make of our Christian service a holy thing, for we cannot. Reach down, O Lord, again and call us to your side, that we might serve you. Not in our own strength and not for our own aggrandizement and praise, but for yours. Thank you that the chasm has been bridged and that Jesus is alive. Through Christ our Lord we pray.